Yeah. So I started reading a series that Steffi actually suggested. Oh, I know. She told me about it. Yeah. And the author has done a little spinoff, like an independent series based mm-hmm. on an AI who like solves crimes. Mm-hmm. And the AI's name is Turning Hopper. Oh, what? And I was like, oh, shit. I understand that second reference. I feel like that's... most people wouldn't. I was like, I can't wait to tell Milena in person. Oh, my God. That's so exciting. Oh, I love that. Oh, one more thing for Miss Admiral Grace, or sorry, for the Rear Admiral Grace Hopper. So fucking cool. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. But yeah, I was like, oh, I can't wait to share with Milena. <laughs> it all comes full circle. <laughs> All right, well, here we are, and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana, and we are spontaneously jumping into the opening. So today we're learning about a second lesbian French painter and a woman who should have won the Nobel Prize twice. All right, sweet. That's pretty cool. Rosalind Franklin. A Rosalind Elsie Franklin. Do you know anything about her? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not familiar with her, but unfortunately the majority of scientists that you've done so far, I've, I've not been familiar with. If you took like some like, like preliminary science classes, like sometimes her name will pop up in the tiniest little blurb. And if you're not paying attention, it just like flies by. Um, but I know you definitely didn't pay attention in science class. So, uh, never mind. I can tell you all about her. She was born in the UK, Notting Hill, July 25th, 1920. So I'm painting a picture here. She wasn't well-liked. People thought she was brilliant, but people would think of her as, like, hard to work with and careless with her appearance. That's most of what people remembered her for. Never mind being, like, a brilliant scientist, but, like, ugh, her hair. It's so frizzy. Oh, man, no, she had a colleague that... Uh, more like a like a rival who did not like her and like wrote that out she had like an unkempt appearance that was a way to like discredit her and her work i like how we both without intentionally choosing to picked people that totally get like shit talked about them really yeah because that'll come up on my end too those bastards just let them be let rosalind be (laughs) So she didn't really care about social norms, and she just wanted to work, so she did, right? And honestly, from what I'm understanding, it was just the people in the UK who really gave her shit, because she had friends in the US and friends in France, and they all loved her. Like, that was, like, the happy side. So I'm not really sure what's happening there, how it stressed her out, where she was born, was raised, and lived. But for a while, she lived in France, but, like, these other two locations had people that actually liked her more than people that she worked with at the UK. So that was hmm. weird. Okay. Yeah. Um, so her childhood and her education, she's got, and I'm going to, I'm just going to go down this bullet point here because her family is a lot of it, but they did a lot of cool things. All right. So her dad, Ellis Arthur Franklin, who was a merchant banker, taught at a working men's college, so like a technical college. Her mom was Muriel Francis Whaley, and they regularly helped settle Jewish refugees from Europe, like World nice. War II. Yeah. yeah. 
She had four siblings. We know their names. David, Colin, Roland, and Jennifer. I have no nice. idea what they did. I didn't go that far into it. Her uncle, Herbert Samuel, uh, was the first practicing Jew to serve in the British cabinet. Her aunt, Helen Carolyn Franklin, was active in trade union and women's suffrage and was later a member of the city council. Nice. And then Helen's husband, Norman de Matos Bentwich, was an attorney general in the British Mandate of Palestine. So like a family who is um, surrounded in politics, sociopolitics, things like that, who put forth effort into their community and to the people around them. Um, with all the social work in a family, she just decided to be a scientist. <laughs> She's like, this is great, guys. I'm going to go this way and be my own person. <laughs> I'm going to go back to the lab. It's quiet gonna, there. This is, you guys, do you, I'm just going to go stare at, like, coal, basically. But she was good at what she did. So she was an amazing student. She bounced around from private school to private school. She only really, like, failed at music, so she had a music teacher who actually asked her parents if uh, she, like, had tonsillitis. <laughs> it, w- it was bad. It was bad. So aside from that, she's a really great student, and she finds herself going to a Newham College, so a woman's cons- constituent at Cambridge University in 1938. So Cambridge University didn't actually give out degrees to women before 1947. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the time she went, she was technically given what was called the second-class honors from her final exams. And then later, she was retroactively awarded the bachelor's degree that she earned. Well, that's something. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was just like, oh, okay, cool, thanks. Awesome. After that, went on to Cambridge under a George Rayford Norrish, and he was an asshole. So he drank a lot. He was really hard on her, would knock her down, and it was frustrating, so she resigned. She said, fuck this. I'm pretty sure he, he thought that she was an assistant. Like, he, she showed up, and he told her to take out the trash. Don't you just love some good old-fashioned sexism? I just, what? Like, thank God we don't have to deal with that today. And she, oh, man. <laughs> she she had to deal with a lot of that. Like, I mean, oh, man, you're going to hate what happens to her later on. Because this is just the beginning, my friend. Yeah, this is not going to be a warm and fuzzy episode, like, at all between either of us. Oh, this is good. We tried, guys. We really tried. <laughs> it lasted one day. <laughs> one episode um okay so she moved on to the british coal utilization research association so short bcura in 1942 and she was an advisor to the military during the war it was there that she studied the porosity of coal so how dense was coal really really riveting stuff right she honestly helped people realize that coal was a great source of fuel and it would help with the production of wartime necessities such as gas masks because, and I didn't know this, coal absorbs harmful gases, but not oxygen. So it was like a perfect filtering system that you can put in these masks using coal. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Think about like Bria filters. I mean, it's, yeah. it's usually charcoal that's in there. Yeah, you can also get little charcoal cubes, like if you're traveling, to put them in your water bottle to help just as an extra layer to purify the water. I didn't know. It's windy shit. Yeah. So that eventually became her PhD thesis in 1945, the knowledge of coal's density and its uses. 
So is she essentially the reason that it's used as a filter, like an air filter? Yeah, she she def- she essentially helped people realize that, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, World War II was ending, though, and she suddenly was not an advisor to the military, and she needed a job. So she asked a friend to let her know of any job openings for a, quote, physical chemist who knows very little physical chemistry, but quite a lot about the holes in coal. It just rolls right off the tongue. Why the hell not? Um, Next thing you know, she's meeting with a guy named Jacques Mering about a job at a laboratory. And I have the name of the laboratory in front of me, but I'm not even going to bother. It just roughly translates to the Central Laboratory of Chemical Services of the state in Paris. Yeah, I'm sold. That sounds legit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't I looked up how to like maybe pronounce it but there's like an sh where there's a ch and it's like a weird like I don't know I don't know I don't know how to do it I'm not gonna do it okay for bonus bonus points can you say it in espanol por favor mi amor I'm pretty sure it's la laboratoria central de cervecias chemical de Berry. Yeah, I mean, to my gringo ears, that sounds totally legit. I, I, I might have made up the Paris part, Perry, if I fuck that up. I don't know the, the Spanish word for Paris, but I think it's that. But she goes, she meets this with Jacques, right? And he was an x-ray crystallographer who applied x-ray diffraction to the study of rayon and other things. So x-ray crystallographer is exactly what it sounds like. Usually they study crystals, but he was like, fuck that. I like cellulose fiber. So he x-rayed that, and she was like, you know what? Yes. Fuck crystals. But instead of doing cellulose fiber, I actually really like coal. So I'm going to x-ray coal now. It's got to be a weird laboratory. (laughs) You're like, what are you doing? I just... I'm, ex- I'm x-raying fabric. It's great. I love it. <laughs> and then she got, Can we do coal? Let's do coal. I'm like, I, I kind of got a thing going on here. Like, come on. I imagine it wasn't the fiber that he was x-raying, but it was definitely like like that, like the molecules of rayon. That yes. Yeah. The very, like, the very structural elements the very structural, of it yeah. itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, like you're just stepping all over this guy's toes. What's going on, man? But he was like, you know what? You're here. I'm going to teach you how to do it. So she learns how to do it. Nice. She then x-rays the fuck out of coal. Like, just all she does, right? And she compares its structure to when coal turns into graphite. Did the x-ray diffraction for the both of them and, like, study the differences between the two. And all you really need to know is that her work x-raying coal and its structure is still in chemistry and physics textbooks today. So it's base knowledge for chemists and physicists. Oh, nice. Yeah. So she's like, here, have this knowledge. And they're like, okay, we'll take it. So her work was really hitting on something, and she was granted a three-year fellowship at King's College, London, in 1950. 1951, she becomes the research associate in the Medical Research Council's MRC Biophysics Unit. And she's assigned to work her x-ray magic on, like, lipids, so fats and proteins. But she eventually switched to DNA strands because of her boss. So her boss was like, okay, we're going to do this, right? He doesn't inform the people who were working on DNA before her, like the other people that are in that lab, that she was being appointed to take over as a supervisor. 
And the two guys' names that they didn't tell were Maurice Wilkins and Raymond Gosling. And she comes in and decides to use a different x-ray tube and micro camera, different techniques to use x-ray diffraction on these particular substances that she knows because she's been doing this forever, but on coal. And these guys are like, uh, I guess this is how we do it, right? Without fully realizing she's technically their boss. Uh, I think she just comes in and starts being their boss. And they're like, okay, well, I guess this is happening now. This woman is just in our lab taking over. And so she even, like, uses a technique where she rehydrates the DNA specimen, which was something they hadn't done before she showed up. And then her notes on it basically, quote, The results suggest a helical structure, which must be very closely packed, containing two, three, or four coaxial nucleic acid chains per helical unit, and having the phosphate groups near the outside. Did you catch any of that? I did, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's biology 101, like our our basic DNA structure in a helix. We didn't know that at the time. So she was, she was speculating on it because it wasn't known. So after the hydration of the specimen, it was discovered that there were two forms or two, like, states that DNA, DNA can choose. So when wet, it was long and thin, and when it was dry, it was short and fat. The longer DNA structure was named B, so DNA B, and the shorter one was named A, and they split up the work. Franklin got A. And among all of this craziness, like, diplomatic okay you work on this you work on this we're gonna do this and like so much tension between everybody because why did she get to be supervisor what's going on why do i have to follow her why is she telling me to do yeah while she's doing that she takes an x-ray that was named later as photo 51 and it was very important in understanding the structure of dna so the pattern that you saw the x-ray supported the idea of a helical structure for DNA, like the double helix. Mm-hmm. And she took it, but things were getting heated around the office, and she starts to find a new job, and she lets her boss know that she's leaving King's. Mm-hmm. And her boss tells Gosling, one of her underlings, to share the data she collected, including Photo 51, to Wilkins. And Wilkins shares that information with a guy named James Watson, without Franklin's knowledge. Okay. So Watson doesn't work in the lab. He works at a different lab. Does he at least work in the same college? Not that I know of, no. Okay. Yeah. Completely wild card third party. Yeah. Basically, they were they were colleagues in the area. Like, they were, like, physicists and, like, chemists who, like, knew each other. And they tended to, like, go out. And Franklin knew Watson. But Watson was just hanging out with his friend Francis Crick. And they were working on their own stuff. And I don't know if you know who got the Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of DNA. Do you know their names? I don't, but I know it wasn't her. No, it was Watson and Crick. Yeah. Yeah. So Wilkins goes over to Watson, shows the picture, and Watson shows Crick. And they take all the info given to them by Wilkins and basically piggyback off of that unpublished data, again, not published, just to create their own data about the structure of DNA. So they grabbed that and they were like, okay, let's go from here. So like, sure, they could have, they absolutely published a like a paper stating this is a double helix. This is why we think it's a double helix. But they're using evidence that they didn't take, they didn't discover, and it was not published yet to write this publication. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So you don't, you just don't fucking do that. It's not how that works. It's not okay. <laughs> like, at least let her get it out before you take her data and use it to do something else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Until it's actually in the public domain for you to be able to professionally work off of. Exactly. That was not the case here. Okay. So she's working on trying to figure things out and also working on, like, changing jobs. And she doesn't know any of this is happening until they publish their own stuff. And it has Watson's name on it, Crick's name on it, and Wilkins' name on it. So the guy who showed the photo. Yeah. The guy's underneath her. Oh. Oh, no, 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 no. They offered him to be, and he declined because he took no part in building the model. Okay. But then he was like, maybe I should have, because then I probably would have been able to put Franklin in the mix as well. Hmm. That's what happened. Okay. But, like, if you remember, they also piggybacked off of work done by episode four's Marie Maynard Daly. So do you remember her? I do. She was born a year after your scientist, who was born in 1920. And Marie Daly was born in 1921. How do you even remember that? I don't remember that. I said I'm gonna I'm gonna ruin this moment, but I actually printed out an episode description list that's right beside me. I hate you. <laughs> no, 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 that's really great because it's the first episode I've had it up where I you told me what year she was born, and it was like okay, we got Marie Daly from episode four, who was the first African American woman to earn a PhD in chemistry, United States, and then also who else or someone else she's close to? Give me a sec. Give me a sec. Give me a sec. Virginia Johnson, episode 11, your sexologist, who was also over, not in the UK. Was she in the UK? Okay, so here, ladies and gentlemen, you can see, ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary individuals, you can see exactly which one of us has type A personality and which one of us has a type B personality. (laughs) Okay, yo, it's very selective. You should see the state of my studio right now. It's a little disheveled. Like, I just, I'm just trying to mention this lady that if they needed to, they can go down to episode. No, you're just like, okay, let me tell you exactly what happened with all these guys, which is useful. I appreciate everything you do. I love you. I love you so much. Whatever. I know where I'm not wanted. Yeah. I'll just take episode four, Marie Daly, and episode 11, Virginia Johnson with me. We can all mull over our woes together in a drink. Oh my god i fucking love you so much whatever um, whatever all right do you do you remember what happened specifically it was a little it was the smallest blurb of what i was trying to get at when i mentioned her i remember when she i think went to columbia for her phd she worked under a really supportive professor who really really helped show her the ropes and kind of get her that you know that PhD of her own. Right. So what happened was that, do you remember what she worked on, the the DNA part? Do you remember that? Uh, not exactly. I'll have okay. to add that to my master list. So like the <laughs> the bacon strips, which which scientists refer to more as ladders, like yes. ladders in their rungs. Okay. And the proteins that created those ladders and rungs? Yes, I love you so much. You were so patiently trying to explain that to me. And I was sitting here going, uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> uh, uh-huh. Oh, it's like bacon. Oh, I don't eat bacon, me. but it's okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, like, basically, that work that she did, talking about the ribonucleic that helped create DNA, that is in the Watson and Crick publication on the structure of DNA as the tiniest footnote. Wait, so were they stealing that work, too? Yeah, it was, it's in the tiniest footnote, and then they just barely, in their Nobel acceptance speech, mentioned her. Oh, those sons of bitches. Yeah, so, like, it wasn't just, like, like, it was more than one person's work where they were like, well, we'll take this and this and this, which, again, I get that you're building off of building blocks, that uh, science that was already predetermined, but, like, maybe reach out to her, maybe wait until something's published, for the public domain, like, B, I can't. And I don't even know how. Apparently, from I, somebody told me that they got drunk in a basement somewhere and they just, like, popped up with the idea or some shit like that about the structure of DNA and they, like, went to the lab and decided to, I don't know what the fuck they were doing. All I know is that there were hard-working women behind this publication. At least two. <laughs> At least two. <laughs> Gee, it's almost like they were discredited and their work overlooked subsequently. And it's it's almost like highlighting the importance of women in the arts and sciences is kind of important. Oh, my God. I like like it w- and her work was published after their work was published. It made it look like she was working off of what they were doing. Like she was inspired by them when really. Yeah. They were inspired by her. Oh, my God. That'd be so fucking frustrating. I would piss myself. I don't know what I would do. In anger. In anger. <laughs> I've never punched Just... anyone, but I feel like that would that would, that would be close. one of those things. Like, what the fuck, dude? And you and it's not like we're strangers. We know each other. You sit there and talk about my appearance to people all the time. Like, go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm okay. I'm just mm. all right. I'm okay. So they got their Nobel Prize in nineteen sixty two. And she wasn't even considered one because they piggybacked off of her shit, but people knew that it was her photo, but they didn't award Nobel Prizes posthumously. So she was dead before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were like, well, we don't really do that. So Watson and Crick, here you go. Yeah. She was young then. She was born in 1920 and by the mid-60s had passed. Yeah. Oh my god, your face. It's a short ride today. Um, so people are still debating what the hell happened, but her work wasn't published yet and it wasn't out and I don't know. I can't. I can't. I can't. They just fucking ran with it. Hmm. I was reading the Wikipedia page and there's a quote on it. Indeed, a clear timely acknowledgement of that Franklin or that photo being Franklin's would have been awkward given the unorthodox manner in which data was transferred from the Kings to Cambridge. So Watson and Crick, actually, they worked in Cambridge. And she worked in Kings, yeah. It would have been awkward. No shit. No shit. So later, Watson, like, would talk about her in his book, The The Double Helix. Yeah. And that's where he described her as, like, unkept and just not cool to hang out with or whatever, just not the best person to work with. Um, but he was even like, maybe we should just re-examine what Franklin did for us. Mm. 
the exact quote is, since my initial impressions about Franklin, both scientific and personal, as recorded in the early pages of this book, were often wrong, I want to say something here about her achievements. He was he was trying to, like, backtrack and be like, oh, hey, guys. Yeah. Acknowledging yeah. He, he had been a little bit of a bitch about it. A yes. complete bitch. A bastard. A complete bitch. Yeah. Yeah. So at least that was said. We move on. She moves on to a different space because she doesn't didn't want to be with Gosling or Wilkins or anyone else anymore. So she goes, 1953, starts to work at Burbeck College for a communist named John Desmond Bernal. A little risky during the whole Cold War era. A little risky, but he loved women scientists and he wanted to build her up. And the way that he could build her up at this particular college, because it was not Cambridge, it was not King's College, uh, it was Burbick. They weren't as high tech. So there's a quote here that says, My desk and lab are on the fourth floor, my x-ray tube in the basement, and I am responsible for the work of four people distributed over the basement, first and second floors on two different staircases. So she's all over the place. You're you're going to get your steps in. That's what it sounds yeah. like. Oh, that means you're going to hatch your Pokemon egg. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's fine. Uh. The next year, she is a senior supervisor for her own research group. So she gets, like, funding from the Agricultural Research Council. And she works with this guy named Aaron Klug. Klug? Kluggy? I don't know how to say his name. And they decided instead of working for DNA that they would work with RNA. So, yeah, RNA. It just helps transfer DNA. It's like the messenger. There's, there's like an mRNA, tRNA, and they all work together to duplicate the DNA strands. But there are such things as RNA viruses. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And they contain certain RNAs that can help work their way into a cell and like okay. destroy hosts. Yeah. It's a really, it's actually really, you, I could I could study viruses all day long, but I'm not. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so with that money, she decided to explore an RNA virus called the tobacco mosaic virus. And that was like a rod structure. And her colleague, Klug, decided to explore the spherical viruses. So they were working together, but they were working in like two different spaces, right? Okay. Together with two different structures. But she, like, researched, like, a bunch of viruses of many plants because it was the agricultural center, the structure of them, and how that structure could facilitate the infection and destruction of the host plant cells. And she ended up making a five-foot-high model of it using a bike handlebar and ping-pong balls. What? Oh, my goodness. Please tell me you have an image of this. I will certainly try to find it. Because that would be amazing to see. I'm so curious. Yeah. Uh, it, it's pretty cool. Uh, I can find it. I can try to find it. Um, she did not get to see it in its intended exhibit, though. So it took her, like, she started in 1957. It took her a year to finish it. The exhibit was in 1958. But okay. the day before the exhibit came out at the Brussels World Fair and the Science Pavilion, uh, sorry, the International Science Pavilion, she passed away. Uh, that's a little sudden. Yeah. So it was stomach cancer, not tuberculosis. It doesn't make it any better. Um, no. Was it like completely sudden or? No, they found. So she there was like um, protrusions coming out of her, her stomach 
and there were just like lumps coming out of her stomach. Yeah. And like two years before that, and somebody was, she was like zipping up her skirt and they were like, yo, what's going on? Like, are you pregnant? And she was like, no, I wish. I don't know what this is. So they go to the doctor and they're like, there are two masses in your stomach. This is stomach cancer. And she did what she could, but she, like, isolated herself from people. Like, she wasn't going to live with her mom because her mom was bringing her down. She was, like, crying a lot. And she was like, I don't want to do this. I just want to keep researching. So that's what she did. So she she was, what, in her mid-30s then? Yeah. She was really young. Yeah. Yeah. But her buddy, Aaron Cluck, continued to work on viruses and ended up being awarded a Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1982 for his development of crystallographic electron microscopy and his structural elucidation of biologically important nucleic acid protein complexes. So the work that she started with the X-ray diffraction of structures on RNA Mm -hmm. when she first started, everything that she started got him a Nobel Prize. And of course, because it happened in 1982 and not before she died, she was not nominated for it and therefore did not get included in it. I mean, did, did he at least say anything in his acceptance speech, like, about her? That's one thing, as opposed to, you know, two assholes that just totally ripped off her work. I was like, oh, look at us and our big dicks. No, 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 no. They they liked each other. They worked close. Yeah, yeah. No, that's... Yeah. That's good. Yay, communism? Well, no, he wasn't the communist. Okay. I got the impression when you introduced him that he was, like, a communist. No, I introduced the professor. boss who 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 hired her whose name was john desmond bernal okay so i got a list of things that she was recognized for after her death I, okay i mean that's something so what do we got i please tell me it's a long list it's an extremely long list nice <laughs> including 2015 newham college boat club in cambridge launched a new racing uh, boat named the Rosalind Franklin. <laughs> no, hold on. Uh, there's just a long list, and I want to just do what I did like last time and just post it because it's straight okay. off of yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if there's any highlights that you like, if you want to share with us, go for it. Mm, all the colleges have like they obviously renamed things, put plaques up, things like that. All Newham, Burbick, King's College, Cambridge theater oh that's interesting okay so 2001 the american national cancer institute established the rosalind e franklin award for women in cancer research nice yeah university of groningen launched the rosalind franklin fellowship to encourage women researchers to become full university professors 2003 the royal society established the rosalind franklin award For an outstanding contribution to any area of natural science, engineering, or technology, the award consists of silver-coated metal and a grant of 30,000 pounds. I mean, shit, that's not bad. No. She's the reason King's College is, like, a historical landmark. Advanced Photon Source started the Rosalind Franklin Young Investigator Award for young scientists who made contributions through... Advanced photon source. Very niche, but nice. Yeah. It's a lot of, like, science fellowships and awards for the kick-ass woman that she was. Google honored Rosalind Franklin with a doodle. 
Ooh, not a Google Doodle. A Google Doodle. Those are my favorites. <laughs> I get really excited when I see that. <laughs> I'm a bastard. I tend to ignore them. Oh, I love them so much. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just show me a good cinnamon cinnamon bun recipe. I don't care. You learn so much from these Google Doodles. I'm telling you. No, I mean, you do. You do. And I'm a bastard. And I don't take the 30 seconds to click it and read something. There was a STEM elementary named after her that was opened okay. in Washington. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's basically all science and academics, but, I mean, she would have fucking loved that, so. I mean, that recognition is good that people came around and acknowledged, like, the significance of the work she was doing. Right. Shitty. She didn't get it during her lifetime, but it's something. No, it's just, it does kind of suck that she wasn't, like, recognized before her death, but. And super sucks that she, like, she saw people steal her work. Yeah, she was, oh, man, people stole her work. She was, like, the victim of, like, an obscene, like, just everywhere she went, there was always, like, some sort of sexism that followed her because she wasn't acting, like, a certain way, like, a certain womanly way that you were supposed to. And you were trying to, like, you were trying to do science with the big boys, and they just, like, shoot her up and spat her out. And that was just, like, frustrating. Yeah. So tell me that there's something better on your end. Eh? Oh, man. Okay, there is no tuberculosis in the making of this story at all. Well, that's good. Yeah. She lives a long time, so that's nice. And and over a crazy, ridiculous period, too. I mean, like, the time span we're talking about, it, she saw it so much fucking happen, so that just must have been mind-boggling. But there are some rough spots. And like I mentioned, it's not like, you know, your mother dying of tuberculosis rough. Or all your artwork burning down in a Philly warehouse fire rough. No. But more like the still to this day being underappreciated and dismissed artist kind of rough. Mm, nobody knows your name, huh? Recognition is rising, though. And it has. But across the board, it's it's different compared to some of the other artists that are profiled. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's in part to this artist, painter Romaine Brooks. She was very private about her life. And also, most likely, very much undiagnosed mental illness, illnesses oh, that she dealt no. with. Yeah, I mean, it's a little speculative, so I won't go in that much on it. But combining that with her already, like, non-conforming lifestyle of the early 20th century, I feel like historically it was pretty easy for people to brush her off. Mm. And honestly, there was a part of me that was considering if she'd be a good fit for the podcast. Why? Well, I mean, learning more about her... I was sold, but I simply, you know, I, I'm not here to do women artists, you know, which is, that's great, but just because you're a woman doesn't necessarily mean you're a feminist, and so kind of digging in deep, I was kind of like, eh, let's see what she got, mm. but she sold me in the end. I was sold. It's a good story. A little sad, but we're here. I mean, like, some of my scientists did not consider themselves feminists, if I'm being honest, but, like, you can't ignore, like, if you ignored all of the good because of some bad, like... Because she was a product of her time or whatever. Like, you're, we're not going to have anyone to talk about. No, no, you're right. And I feel like a lot of the critical things people had to say about Romaine was more, like, personality-wise rather than the type of work she was putting out. Right. But speculative, so we'll see. Last episode, we covered Rosa Bagnor in 1920th century France. And this episode, we're going to the wilds of... 1920th century France. It's different. It's different. I can see your face. No one else uh-huh. can see your face. Uh huh. It's different. I swear. 
last episode was a painter. I mean, this episode, she's a painter. Last episode, it was a lesbian. And this episode, she's a lesbian. But it's different. Okay. okay. Let's hear yeah. it. All right. <laughs> well, for one, Romaine Brooks had a pretty fucked up childhood. Oh, okay. So already yeah. different. Already different. She's a little bit of a doozy. She was born in 1874 in Rome to a wealthy American family from Philly, father A. Major Henley Goddard, and mother Ella Mary Waterman. And her mother had remained while she was traveling in Rome. She was the youngest of three. Not much is known about her middle sister, Mary and me also known as Maya. She had an older brother, a Saint Mar. Unique name. I don't know where the hell that came from. Saint Mar? They already named him a saint? Again, kind of. It's weird. This family's weird. I don't know. He had a severe mental illness, you know, most likely an intellectual or developmental disorder. Mm -hmm. And their mother was completely doted on him. He was like the sole focus of all of her affection. Okay, so they ignored everybody else. Mother ignored everyone else. Mm. A little hard for little Romaine. Not long after Romaine is born, her alcoholic father abandons the family. Oh, goody. One of those. Yeah. Which, I mean, in theory, probably better to be off without him. Yeah. (laughs) Did he join a cult? No, I not that I know of. I didn't bother researching him like the last dad in episode 12 who joined a cult in France in Paris. Different story. Listen to episode 12. <laughs> but that left Romaine with a mother that's been described as, quote, a cruel narcissist and a erratic parent. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to defend her, but her alcoholic husband just left her with three children and one of them has a mental disorder and probably so does the other one. I don't know. I feel like the middle child, Maya, was like, how the fuck can I get out of this situation? Because everyone's goddamn crazy. That doesn't help with Romaine that her mom drops her off on the family help in Philly, and she leaves her Europe with the two oldest children. Like, way to make your kid feel like a burden. Jesus. Yeah, like, she was, she was an infant. Like, didn't want her. And it wasn't until 1886, when Romaine was 12, she finally joined her mom and siblings in Europe. Oh, I would have said fuck you. Would not have gone... I know, it's so hard, though. Like, I, but you can see, like, where early on, like, Romaine most likely developed some severe trust issues. And these insecurities, like, come up later on through her life and most likely all stem from this very unstable childhood. Right. Yeah. And at this point, she's only 12. Now, like every other artist I've covered, she was creative from a young age, you know, drawing as young as six. And like every other artist I've covered, when her mom found out, she was like, fuck no, you're not allowed to draw. What? Why? Hey, no, yeah, she she had to do it in secret. So unlike other wealthy families that could and did support their child's interest in the arts with a very high quality education, Romaine's mom used the education as a way of getting rid of her kid. Seriously? Yeah. So once little 12-year-old Romaine is in Europe with the family, she's sent off to an Italian convent school for two years and fucking hates it. She hates it so much, she tries to commit suicide. Oh, no. In an Italian Catholic convent, they fucking expel her. Oh, no. I they sent her back to mom and brother in the Riviera. So guess what? She hates it there, too. And eventually is sent off to an all-girls finishing school in Switzerland. Or she's understandably a depressed, angsty teenager. Oh, with a dysfunctional family like that, I mean, who wants very much little to do with you, it's not too surprising to hear Romaine described as 
mistrustful of others, you know, quick to take offense, and completely self-centered. Jesus. Now, a funny thing did happen for Romaine while she was at this all-girls school. She had a, quote, spontaneous flowering of interest in her own sex. Mm. <laughs> like, just in case her life wasn't difficult enough in the late 1800s, like, let's throw in some homosexuality, because that'll mix things up. Oh my god. Yeah. Like, ah, oh, jeez, one more thing. Now, after finishing school, Romaine settles back into life with her mother and brother and understandably wants out. Yeah, they're living in wealth, but for Romaine, it's very much a toxic situation. And yeah. she described living with her mother like, quote, living on an avalanche. Ew. Yeah, like, I just... You're not supposed to feel like you're bringing your mom up or, like, avoiding her. like Or, like, avoiding the, the meltdowns that would come with her. You know what I mean? I mean, your your parents are the people you're able to... You're supposed to be able to trust the most in life. And if you can't trust them, like, that's really going to throw things off. Yeah. So later on, you know, as an adult, people kind of, like, suggest some of her behaviors go back to this unstable childhood. And you're like, well, yeah, no fucking shit. No like, shit. You'd be the same fucking way if that's how you grew up. Now, here comes the late 1890s. Romaine's about 19, living in a 30-room chateau in France, and with the help of her sister Maya, she talks the family doctor into talking her mom into giving Romaine a monthly allowance, which finally gave her a Francis freedom. Okay. And she gets it. She gets the allowance at the cost of getting pregnant by the doctor who elopes with her sister to New York City. Uh, wait, what? So she's carrying this baby for a doctor who elopes with her sister? Yeah, because that was the doctor who was attending to her older brother. So I'm assuming baby was an accident. Well, okay, disclosure time. So Romaine did write an unpublished memoir, but it's, it's very much a case of unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. And at this point in 1898, like, Romaine, she's in her early 20s, she's moved to Paris, and then suddenly quits her job at a cafe and moves to the countryside, where she most likely gave birth to a daughter, put her in a convent, and in all my research, the child is never mentioned again. Jesus. So, was it really a child of the doctor? Like, was it consensual? Like, Right. I mean, we don't know. There's a lot of things about her childhood in her memoir that she wrote about that she fudges the details a little bit yeah just enough so you're never quite sure sure what's the truth and what's not yeah yeah like where the fudging actually starts oh man but i mean again when you have a shit childhood like that like one way to escape is through your imagination right like everyone copes with those negative things in different ways right now socially things are starting to shift as romaine is coming of age in europe and on a side note she also never felt like she fit in growing up which I don't really get. I mean, she's an American who was raised by the family help and grew up away from her family in Italy, France, and Switzerland. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think of the languages for that. I mean, if you don't speak any three of those, like, it's going to be a little fucking hard. Now, time-wise, we're on the tail end of the stuffy Victorian era, uh, meeting culturally ingrained oppression for women. Woo, always fun. But things are starting to change. I mean, thanks to the suffrage movement that we cover in episode two. Right. With this emerging feminism we've got going on, there's this concept of the new woman, which is essentially women asserting themselves in the public sphere beyond the roles as wife and mother. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, Romaine wasn't too keen on the whole traditional gender expectations. And as she settled into her own, she kind of defied that in her lifestyle and her art. And that didn't make her too popular with the art world public. That, I feel like, is part of the dismissal of her work um, that has kind of carried into present day. Gotcha. 
yeah, that she, she was already doing things really differently. And I feel like it's just very easy for people at the time to be like, eh, whatever, your work doesn't matter. Now, Romaine hits her early 20s and decides to really focus on her art. She settled in Paris and decides to move to Rome in 1898. And as has been mentioned, Paris really was the artistic hub in the early 20th century. But Rome was a pretty major one too. So she moves to Rome, meets a guy, and Romaine was like, hey, you're actually pretty okay for a guy. I mean, this is a woman with few friends. But eventually gets weird and he brings up marriage. Oh no, stop it. Nobody wants that. Yeah, like, way to ruin things. Like, here I thought we were being friends and you were showing me Rome and you actually took interest in me as a person and as a sex object. Yeah. And shit like that happened quite a bit over her life. And later on, she marries a gay man. And (laughs) that essentially acted as social cover against these creepers. Same. Yeah, just fucking, I'm married. Go away. I actually had to do that once. What, with a gay friend? Take cover? Well, no, he he wasn't gay. Um, but I, like, I was, I think it was, like, for the food truck festival or something. I had to stop by somewhere to, like, use the restroom in the city. And, like, I, I mean, like, I really had to go. So, like, we're in there. It's me and my friend. And there were technically coworkers, but they're, one of my coworkers was, like, a really close friend of mine. And, like, I couldn't get into the bathroom without, like, dealing with this creep who was like, hey, beautiful, you married. And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I am. And I actually moved without him noticing the ring that you made me to like, uh. my left finger. And then, like, while I was in the bathroom, I, like, frantically texted my friend and I was like, okay, I'm going to get out and you have to pretend we're, like, married. You don't have to grab my hand. Just be like, hey, baby, how are you? And, like, play it up because some guy is really fucking weird and i need your help and i just got like a text it was like okay i'll do the thing it's like one of those yep definitely married this guy here and like i pointed to him when he asked me the first time and actually like it works really well but like i don't we, we shouldn't have to do that no no we shouldn't have to be like sorry i'm already property of someone else you should respect that instead of respecting me as an individual yeah i'm not actually into you oh no is that offensive sorry i'm I'm actually married married get out of my face it's frustrating so i imagine it worked really well when she lived so it did it did but i'll touch on that in a hot second oh no because right now we're still technically in Italy, in Rome. So while she's in Italy, she goes to an island uh, not too far off of Naples and not too far from Pompeii called Capri. And that, for a hot second, was a premier gay expat community. Mm-hmm. From this point in her 20s, you know, Romaine returns again and again to this island off of Naples. Um, the first trip is Romaine. Romaine is focused on selling paintings, so that way she'll have money for art classes back in Paris. Mm-hmm. At this point, she's completely financially supporting herself. And uh, this trip is described as the happiest period in her life. Huh. Yeah, because she's just, she's just doing her thing. Absolutely beautiful island. Just, yeah, like you said, doing her thing where people are, you know, fairly tolerant. There's lots of like openly gay couples. Right. And she's young too. Like, you know, there's so many endless possibilities. Life hasn't crushed her down yet. No. Yet. Keyword. Now, as a whole, Romaine's ability to move around you know, without family supervising or being financially involved or even having a chaperone, is, it's very unique. Uh-huh. Now, turn of the century, things are going all right for Romaine. And they get even better once her brother and mother die. Oh, dear. It's a bit cold. I know. But it's true. Yeah. I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do, man. 
Yeah. Well, when family mother money is involved, it helps. Yeah. Her brother passes away in 1901, and Romaine comes back to the family home after reading about it in a paper while she was in Switzerland. Mm. Apparently had a little bit of a breakdown and was like, I'm going to go there and kind of recoup a bit, and that's where she read about it. Yeah. And then within the year, her mom passes away, and suddenly at 28, she's like the sole inheritor of this massive family fortune. Oh, shit. Yeah, because remember that sister of hers like eloped and went off to America? Yeah. She's not getting any of the money. Nope. What's she going to do with all that money? Now, up to this point, like like I mentioned, she'd been living in almost poverty, attending art classes and fending off men trying to take sexual advantage of her. And like there was this one guy she did a portrait for, and he refused to pay her the rest of the money for the commission if she didn't sleep with him. Oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, she never got the money. And later on in life, she's like, he stole that painting from me. Yeah. Now, 1902 hits and things are going pretty good. Uh, she has her sham marriage to English high society gay pianist and classical scholar Ellingham Brooks. Aww, I like that. It worked. Understandably, they led their own lives, kind of mm-hmm. independent of one another. You know, Romaine did give him an annual allowance, and that allowed Ellington to live out his life on Capri, that Italian island she visited, and will Aww. visit time and time again. Right. And what the marriage does provide Romaine is an inn. Because now, with the social status of her marriage and also the wealth she has, right. that gets her into Europe's intellectual salons and homes. Oh, you can't have an unmarried woman in your home. How scandalous. I mean, shit's going to get a little scandalous with some of the drama llamas we're going to talk oh, about later. Oh, she seduced so many wives, didn't she? Not necessarily, but oh. I just want to say there's so many drama llamas. I, I did not. I only include, like, the high points of it. The high, okay. High points are low points. Well, you'll see. Now, it's also this time, going back to 1902, that Romaine took on the identity as androgynous Romaine Brooks. Uh, she drops her first name, Patrice, and takes on Romaine, you know, being her middle name. Right. Now, fast forward to 1910, Romaine is 36, and things are going good. You know, she's finally creating, like, her own true body of work. Mm-hmm. Now, throughout Romaine's career, we've got Impressionism going on, Cubism, Surrealism, all these really big movements with really big names like Picasso and Salvador Dali. And, you know, Paris was, like, the center for all these big artistic movements, and Romaine didn't really give a shit about any of that. Why would you? I, she was very much a woman kind of doing her own thing. It was Her work was very distinct and a very singular focus. And she wasn't really interested in being part of a movement. And part of that stemmed from this attitude she developed while at boarding school, which is this reference to a play, is, quote, to thyself be enough. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, in those schools with that much status around you and, like, you're like you're already the odd duck out and nobody really knows you or understands anything about you you kind of have to let that shit just fly yeah and so and people were like oh she was dismissive oh she was kind of an asshole i'm like no it just sounds like she didn't want to pull it up with anyone's bullshit yeah like i mean not to say she might not i mean she definitely wasn't warm and fuzzies all the time and like you said like a creation of her time there's definitely negative qualities about her but like the more i was reading the more i was like eh no, she sounds pretty legit. Yeah. She's a woman that holds her own. Now, her paintings are all 
portraits, oil on large canvases, and they're done in these very muted, very somber palettes of grays. And the portraits are very, they've got this very moody atmosphere, um, all typically of a single individual on this like vast plain background. Her style, it's realistic but loose. You know, her broad strokes captured kind of just enough of the sitter to distill them. Mm-hmm. And the intensity that she captured in people's like their faces and kind of their their pose people called her the quote theft of souls oh geez what yeah um just because she would be able to capture them so well and so realistically and in- intently there was one woman she did a portrait of and afterwards the woman was kind of pissed because she was like you didn't make me look beautiful mm. and romaine was like and <laughs> like that's not what my work is about yeah uh now my favorite painting of hers and you, you might have seen it around, is of a friend, a Lady Una Trowbridge. She's looking dead at the viewer with a monocle in one eye, and she's wearing a tux with two out of her 15 Dutch hounds. What? I definitely have never seen that. Oh my god, it's fucking amazing. I was I was flipping through my encyclopedia book, and I saw the picture, and I was like, oh my god, oh my god, what's her name? Because I've, I've seen this painting, like, years ago, and as a yeah. kid, I was like, this is amazing. And actually, now that explains a lot why I own my own tux, but... <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Now, Romaine, she described her work as capturing the essential loneliness of human predicament. And it, I mean, it fucking shows in her paintings. They're not fun and fuzzy at all. No. They're pretty haunting in their expression and color. But in her choice, they're also very confrontational. It was primarily women that she painted um, and in very forward poses too they were very active they're you know they're not passive like right. traditional depictions of women and sometimes you can look and you can tell the difference when it's a woman painting a woman as opposed to a man and unfortunately a lot of the times you're like oh look it's not a blonde woman with perfect skin and size d tits <laughs> who's a size zero <gasps> uh, a woman obviously must have painted this like it's sad but yeah i like that's one thing that fucking pisses me off all these male an artist being like i paint beauty and i mean like bitch you paint victoria's secret models like let's be honest with ourselves you need a moment that's another thing i'm not gonna go into that <laughs> i know exactly who you're talking about too i know i know this shit gets under my skin so hard <laughs> but so her women they're not passive at all you know she's directly challenging the male gaze and that's essentially the overreaching lens in which women are seen through a man's point of view but not their own Right. Yeah, and that shit applies to everything about life, unfortunately. <laughs> now, a contemporary painter of the time, fellow American expat in Paris, was Mary Cassatt. Who? Oh, fucking hell. Mary Cassatt? Just pretend I know nothing. Oh, Jesus, woman. You, okay, so you, you just, no, you can't be mad at me when you sit there and you compare DNA strands to bacon and then you throw a name at me? No. No. She was one of the more prominent impressionistic painters and that's a big name kind of like look i didn't take art history i know that like i understand like basics of art really basic art stuff but like art history i didn't take it not a thing in my life honestly aside from like photography classes i didn't take any art classes zero and i like to think you don't you don't need to have taken an art class to like to be able to enjoy what what we do no, no, no. I do enjoy it. I just know that, like, I don't I don't know that name. No, no, no. That's totally fine. She just tends to be a bigger name of the period. So if people are familiar, that's that's going to be one of them. Okay. But essentially, she was, like, the direct opposite of everything Romaine did. Okay. You know, like, unlike Mary, like, Romaine didn't want to paint, like, mothers and interior life. 
Gotcha. Uh, she wanted to paint lovers and lesbians. You know. Yeah, because Mary's work is very colorful, very impressionistic, very soft, very feminine, traditionally mm-hmm. feminine. Right. And Romaine's work is not like that at all. Now, in dismissing current trends at the time, so impressionism, traditional gender roles, it was easy to for her to be collectively dismissed. Yeah. She did have gallery shows. Uh, her first exhibition was at a, a very prestigious Parisian gallery. 13 portraits were shown, some nudes, all of them with an erotic undertone, and that essentially was her publicly outing herself as queer. Okay. Did anyone yeah. catch that? Or... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into that. Um, but at the time, Paris was one of the few areas where you could be open. Yeah. And it was, a, like, in certain circles, you're going to catch shit. But if you stay within the right circles... It'll be okay. Yeah. Now... Overall, without the need for Romaine to sell her work to make a living, you know, she was able to creatively explore what was interesting to her and not necessarily what was commercially, like, valuable at all. Right. Like, all the artists have covered so far, like, they're committed to their art. Some put off marriage. Others balance raising a family with their work. And, and typically, their their personal relationships complement their creative process. But, like I mentioned, Romaine had a lot of drama llamas in her life. Now, going back to her personality as a kid, you know, she was always very self-focused, having learned from a young age that she couldn't really rely on those around her. And that kind of fucked up her being able to have personal relationships later on. In Paris, like, she wanted to be immersed, you know, in the whole, like, bohemian intellectual scene going on. But at the time, same time, she had a really hard time, like, relating to people. And she could be super, like, hypercritical, you know, like, rejecting people over the smallest things that offended her. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like I get the vibe of maybe there's there's a lot of insecurity going on there. Mm-hmm. And as you know, you might have guessed she wasn't the friendliest for that type of quality. But that didn't stop her from having a string of romantic relationships. A one person she fell for was Princess Edmond de Pognac, sure. also known as Winnietra, singer, the American Harris to the Singer Sewing Machine Company. <gasps> Ooh. Yeah. Openly gay woman with a gay husband living in in Paris. That's what you do. Scandalous. Romaine bickered with her husband and also stole, I guess, was trying to steal a woman away from him, the Russian ballerina Ida Rubinstein, who she did a 1917 portrait of, and it's up on the show notes where you guys can always see images. This is my designated show notes plug. Mm. You can see the artwork and see the scientists and the artists that we talk about, and you should go check it out on our website. All right, that's it. <laughs> I gotta work on my plug. Um, it was a Natalie Clifford Barney that Romaine completely fell in love with, and their relationship did last over fifty years. Okay, I, but it, it was it was fairly spotty. Wait, you said fifty or fifteen? Fifty. Oh, holy shit! Yeah, and Romaine met Natalie when she was in her forties. Didn't last episode's uh, lifetime partner? Her name was Natalie. Her name was, yeah, that was for uh, Rosa Bonior, and they were together forever, and they essentially lived happily ever after. Romaine and this Natalie do not. Oh. Yeah. So between Romaine and Natalie, it was it was Natalie who was the more well-known in the Parisian scene. Uh, she was an active writer, and she was very open and uncompromising on being a lesbian. And it, it, that did cause scandal for her wealthy father back in D.C. Mm, yeah. Like, eh fucking deal with it and for the couple natalie was the one who gave while romaine was the one who took oh yeah complete opposites but they made it work and like i mentioned romaine was in her mid-40s when they first met it was the late 1910s 
Mm-hmm. Apparently, Romaine had stalked her a little bit in her car a few times. Okay, that's not healthy. Then, and then finally got up the nerve to talk to her, and then, you know, here they are 50 years later. Oh, Jesus. Now, one difficulty was Natalie's disinterest in a monog- monogamous relationship. Same! Yeah. She, she just thought it wasn't what she wanted and so quite often natalie you know would fall in love with these women and everything would be going fine and then she'd fall in love with another woman and the first woman would be like wait a minute what Mm -hmm. and with paris being one of the only like okay places to be open during that time it was a still fairly small scene where everyone very much knows everyone Mm-hmm. So you could very easily cause some yeah. drama llamas. Oh dear! And that kind of stuff. And that that's totally happened. Now, while Romaine is described as being possessive and jealous, she did agree on an open relationship. Mm-hmm. And that that did result in a love triangle between Romaine and Natalie and Natalie's lover Lily de Garmont, a French writer. And over the years, like they'd all live in houses clustered together in France and Italy. But there was turmoil, you know, there was little side flings along the way. It's called open communication, people. It's not fucking hard. Like, if you're gonna go ahead and put yourself into that, you really gotta put the work in. You can't just be like, oh, we're gonna be in a relationship, but then, like, freak out every time someone's a little bit jealous. That's not how polyamory works. I'm super grumpy right now. (laughs) I would say I know, but I, I don't know. Yeah, you don't know. It's, I don't. I don't. It's not easier than having a monogamous relationship. There's a lot more. I mean, not to say there isn't a lot oh, of work for that sure. goes into it, but, like, you're juggling multiple people that you care about, and it's... Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not easy. And especially with someone who's, like, not okay with it, uh, with being in one, and then just kind of, like, going along because they're, like, into you, and then you, like, know that they're unhappy, and you're just like, I don't I don't know what to eat. Look, I told you what I was about beforehand. Let's talk about this. <sighs> Can you tell that I'm I'm You know what I no, I when I was writing out this line, I was like, Milana's gonna have some words for us, boys and girls. Yeah. No. Like it's it's not easy, people. It's not like you're just fucking random people. It's not what people think not like non mon is at all. It's the exact opposite, but whatever. I'm just well, it's whatever you make of it. Whoever like everybody has their own lines and stuff. The base is the open communication and the ability to talk shit out without freaking out. And if you can't do that, then you need to stop. Just stop. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to have a very hard time, be it with a single partner or having two or three of them. Like, right. it's, it's going to be so hard to go forward. Yeah. I mean, they do go forward, and, but things do peter out, and I'll, I'll get to that later on. But they were in love and they were together, but it also seemed at times like it just, it wasn't solid. Like a lot of the other artists I've talked about, like things are pretty solid, but Romaine's different. Her course in life's a little bit more choppy. In 1935, Romaine's got work displayed in Carnegie Hall in New York City. Nice. Yeah, she go, and she lives there for a year and was really disappointed when response to her work was less than enthusiastic. Oh no, why was it less than enthusiastic? Well, I mean, by the 1930s, like, Romaine's work is seen as old. Irrelevant, yeah, in that it's it's chronicled a very personal perspective of existence. Uh, a wealthy, introverted American lesbian living within the intellectual par- Parisian elite. Oh, yeah. And not everyone can no. relate to that, yeah. 
zero people can relate to that. And, and, you know, also the fact that she's not associated with any of the large art movements of the 20th century. Right. So she was bitter. Yeah. Now, her and Natalie, they, yeah, they they did tour the U.S. on train to L.A. on this trip. But really, after that, Ramin had no interest in going back to the United States. So, I mean, she moved back to the continent for good. Mm. Yeah, she was really kind of, you know, ticked off with just the lackluster response she got in her home country. Now, over the years, Romaine, she did compromise her creative work for the relationship she was in. And like you were saying, like, it takes a lot of energy to to commit yourself to, you know, all these various facets within the relationship. And I, I think that they did ultimately end up taking away from her studio time. Um, and also they, they did travel a good bit. Through Natalie, Romaine was able to extend her social circle. And, you know, they traveled a lot visiting friends. But kind of importantly, the people that Romaine met through Natalie became sitters for her paintings. I'm sorry, sitters? Like... Yeah, like the subject matter, like the people that she'd paint. Oh, I was like babysitters. Why do you need to babysit no, paintings? No, no. Like if they if they sit for you and you get to paint them, you get to call them your sitter. I guess. Yeah, I guess that sounds weird to if you're not you haven't been involved in that. They were not her babysitters. No, she got to paint them. And these are people who have really big names in the Parisian like intellectual scene, you know, and the writing scene, both poetry, novels. But for sake of time, I'm not going to get into any of those individuals now. In 1925, Romaine's 51, and she hits her professional peak. Her her work's in three exhibitions that year, touring from Paris to London and then to New York City. And it's, you know, after she's back from New York from that 1935 trip, things do kind of peter off a little bit. Some drawings have survived, uh, and she did do her last known painted portrait in 1961. Mm-hmm. But... Compared to other artists, you know, without Romaine's interest in selling her work and having it in a formal gallery representation, it does make it harder to track her work. So we're not really sure if she did actually slow down or it's simply that the work she did later on is out of the public's eye. Right. So a a little trickier in that respect. Now, gradually, Romaine did come to exhibit some of the same behaviors that she despised in her mother. No. As she got older, yeah. She began isolating herself from others. She she had really irregular sleeping and eating schedules. She, at one point, she was really concerned about her eyes, so she would seclude herself in a dark room and drink nothing but carrot juice and, like, mi- like herbal mixes. So, Romaine's, like, aberrant behavior and insistent on Natalie's sole attention strained their relationship. Mm-hmm. Until Natalie, and she was like, look, you need to get out. You need to go see friends. You can't do this to yourself. And she couldn't take it. Right. Later on, after Romaine passes, Natalie says that she always regretted how the relationship came to an end. But another source says that at the time, some of this stuff is really going on with Romaine. Natalie confesses to having been had, having a affair for seven years. And that fucking devastates Romaine. Oh, no, that's not open. Damn it, Natalie. Yeah. So when you hear one of like, oh, she went crazy. And then the second was like, uh, she went crazy because you fucking cheated on her and broke her heart. Like suddenly that you're like, oh no, I, I feel like a lot of people would be a little unbalanced a bit after a breakup like that. Just so, just not, just, but it, that's not open, not open, not ethical, not okay. No, that is the, the exact opposite of what you do. I'm done. I'm done. They legit built a house together at one point. I'm done. They did it in the shape of an H. So Natalie could have one side and Romaine could have the other. And the center bit was where Natalie could entertain and they could all be together. 
I'm done. <sighs> I mean, either way. I don't know. They, like, these women, they went through fucking World War II together. Yeah. But post-1945, I mean, remained very much faded from public eye. Her relationship with Natalie, you know, came to an end. And in December of 1970, Romaine dies alone at the age of 96. Oh, man. Yeah. A year later, there's a retrospective of her work at the National Museum of American Art. Oh, yeah? How was that received? Yeah. Well, uh, well, during her lifetime, yeah, you know, there was some acclaim for her work, but, but it was fairly limited. And going back to how she was such a singular entity, you know, and there's no broader movement she was associated with, kind of dismissed and, you know, figurative style wasn't in style while she was doing it. Right. But come that show in 1971, you know, there was a renewed interest in figurative work. There was also this rising thing of feminism. Mm. Suddenly people were starting to get interested in feminist artists and the history behind it. Right. And also civil rights movement along with, you know, people learning about and asserting and be like, yeah, we're here, we're queer, like fucking deal with it. Yeah. We belong here just as much as anyone else. So with all these things kind of coming together in the 80s, her work finally started taking off. Nice. Yeah, but it's crazy because she was born in 1874 and she lived in 1970. Like that's a crazy time span to be alive and she was so close she was just like a decade short of truly being appreciated so it's really it's kind of shitty but she got there now in uh in 2016 this kind of crappy but nice um the smithsonian magazine featured her finally declaring quote the world is finally ready for romaine brooks oh man like it's it's 2016 oh my god at least things caught up like thanks guys (sighs) yeah so i mean when i initially went to read about her like I came across descriptions, like, essentially calling her crazy. I wonder why. I, I was just, just wait, this is a nice little gem. Someone citing now outdated studies essentially theorized that, quote, emotional incest with the mother is indeed the very essence of lesbianism. What? Get the fuck out of here. Oh, Get no. Out. Oh, no. I don't, There's I more. don't, I, uh, mm, Okay. So her leading biographer took that and said of Romaine, quote, Only this can account to Romaine's profound sense of having been cheated by life and her refusal to forgive her mom. Stop! He fed into that shit? She, she fed into she that shit. She fed into that shit. I'm dead. I'm done. Get out. I mean, very much dated. But, like, so a while back, like, this is a very kind of influential individual making these statements about this artist and so unsurprisingly when there was even less momentum for romaine brooks to be picked up in subsequent like art history books i mean this is someone you typically don't learn about at all in art history i mean and so with her being summed up that way i think that's why it's taken so long for her work to finally receive like the critical attention and appreciation it deserves I mean, like, kind of like you were talking about, like, it's too easy to look at a woman who doesn't fit in and give her shit. I mean, like, oh, she's crazy. And then decide after the fact, like, oh, she was so pioneering and, and modern in her way of life. And you're like, okay, great. But like, you should realize who you're currently saying that shit about now. I mean, overall, Romaine, she's complicated. Uh, she didn't have a neat and tidy life, you know, like a lot of the other artists that I've profiled. But uh, fortunately, you know, she gained the means to make art on her own terms and End of the day, she just wanted to be loved. Oh. That's all we all want. She just wanted someone to, you know, to be with her to support her and support her in her art. I don't blame her. I love you, Romaine. You crazy ass. Yeah. I love a woman in tux and so her paintings. Yeah. They're so much fun. 
And to me, that's 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 why I, I ultimately chose her because of her tux. Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a sucker for a woman in a tux. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. That's fair. So yeah, so that's why this week she's my favorite feminist. Like I said, her life's it's a little rough. It's not nice and tidy and clean, but that's life. Not everything is you know warm and fuzzies. So once again, if you guys have made it so far, God bless you. You guys are really awesome. You really are. All forty something of you. Hey hey, that's. 30-something more than your mom listening, which I super-duper appreciate. <laughs> I really do. And maybe my mom, when she remembers our website name. <laughs> I love your mom. I think I'm joking, but I'm not. I know. All right, guys. So thanks again. Uh, now, Milana, if people want to see the show notes or learn more about us, where can they go? So we have a website. It is myfavoritefeminists.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram under My Favorite Feminists. You can listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And if you're listening on iTunes, go ahead, rate, and subscribe. It does help. And in the comment section below, we just want to know what non-traditional piece of clothing do you like on your significant other? Wait, what non-traditional piece of clothing (laughs) would you put my brother in? Oh, I know this one. I know the answer. What? I know it. I know the answer to this. What? What is it? You'd put a kilt on him so fast. I don't know if I could talk him into it. I'd be like, it's multi-purpose. There's plenty of <laughs> pockets. Look, you can hang a hammer here. You can put another hammer over there. I'd be like, oh, what's that? A nice breeze. And squeezy squeeze. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, that's, am I right? I'm right, right? Oh, there's no way in hell he'd do it. Ah! <laughs> you should have seen her eyes dart. <laughs> I know. I'm rolling my eyes. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. What about you? Non-traditional clothing. For men, I don't know. What do I, what do I like on men? Clothing, clothing's all right. Um... To me, it's not necessarily what you're wearing, but how you're wearing it. That's how you're wearing it. I yeah. I don't honestly. I've never been like a looks kind of lady. Anyway, I like personalities. Anyway, whatever article clothing you like on your significant other, you let us know. And I'll be honest. I don't want to know, but you can let me let it know. Let me know. I just I just want to know about the people that are listening. I want to know what they're thinking i want to know everything about them i know you guys keep coming back episode from episode i'm really like, no they're still here no there's still there's more there's more <laughs> i don't what? i don't know did you expect this i didn't expect this ah uh, no i didn't i didn't at all yeah. so thank you all right so thank you. yeah no seriously guys thank you we, we really do appreciate it <laughs> all right well until next time we'll see you guys then bye come on, come on, come on, come on, come on.